From RTE Radio, I'm Neil O'Sheridan. This is Playback Daily. Everyone was saying, pardon, pardon, pardon. I thought all my friends are going bloody deaf and I, <laughs> at least I still have my hearing. I saw Bosco listed in the papers every day, but I actually believed that it was Bosco Hogan, the actor. I had no idea it was a puppet. So it needs to be oiled as well, does it? It needs to be oiled, it needs to be wet, it needs to be taken care of. Coming up on this edition of Playback Daily, are we dating the same guy? The Facebook groups keeping women safe, making Irish sporting history, swimmer Daniel Whiffen, and the former Miss Ireland's troubles with her hair. That's all on the way over the next hour of the radio catch-up show that's had the thatch done and doesn't care who knows it. On this morning's nine o'clock show monologue, Brendan Courtney began, where else, with Whamageddon. New and kind of, well, maybe this isn't that new, but it's definitely odd. Have you heard of uh, Whamageddon? Okay, so Whamageddon is this new game. Game? Is game the right word? Maybe it is tradition. People who play Whamageddon have to get from the 1st of December to the 24th of December without hearing Wham's classic Christmas classic uh, last Christmas. There's no prize money. There's no board for it. It's just what people kind of do, I think, is that they... They have a website and everything now. It's actually going for about 10 years, but it's gained massive popularity. Seems a bit odd, doesn't it? But anyway, uh, on the website they say, well, we can't stop you from deliberately sending your friends to Whamhalla by sending them last Christmas on their phones. The intention is that this is a survival game, not a battle. So it's a bit of crack, basically. Well, over in Northampton, a very foolish DJ had to apologise about 7,000 people at a football match in Northampton on Saturday afternoon and he thought it'd be funny to play last Christmas wiping out about 7,000 Whamageddon fans and they were not happy. <laughs> they took it very seriously. Um, he actually is quoted as saying, I, I gave it a spin thinking it would be quite funny to wipe out 7,000 people but clearly it wasn't funny so I've had to officially apologise to everyone and I won't be playing it next week, I promise, he said. So people are taking it quite seriously um, and then we, we did discuss whether or not we play it today. You'll have to wait and see. Spoiler alert, there'll be no wham played on this show, dear listener, in case you're reaching for the dial. Don't touch it. Relax and let's move on to some outsized achievements from Irish people recently. Stories coming in this morning all across the newspapers of an Irish hat trick, shall we call it, on a global scale. So first off, Irish harpist uh, Siobhan Brady has been given her official Guinness Book record for, this is bizarre and brilliant, she climbed Kilimanjaro with her harp and she played it on the top of Kilimanjaro for 18 minutes. And what really got my attention about this Mrs Brady was finally able to celebrate over the weekend, it reads here in the Indo, after Guinness World Record contacted her to confirm she has successfully broken her own world record. <laughs> so she had done it previously. Uh, and so congratulations, Siobhan Brady. And it was all in aid of Cystic Fibrosis Ireland. Uh, she did this record-breaking climb during the summer, but she is now officially in the Guinness Book of Records. And there's a picture of her on the top of Mount Kilimanjaro <laughs> in Tanzania with her harp. <laughs> it's a really good picture, actually, as well. Uh, over the Irish Times to cover another, the second in the hat-trick of wins for Ireland. Daniel Whiffen, brilliant photograph across the front of the Irish Times, uh, swimming, head half in the water. You can see one eye in a goggle and the arm in full flight. He's become the first Irish swimmer to break a world record. The County Armagh swimmer won his third gold medal of the week with victory in the 800 metre freestyle yesterday, taking three seconds off the previous European record. Not amazing. Fair play to him. Well done, Daniel. That's brilliant. 
And the third story in our lovely hat trick across the front of the Irish Examiner is a brilliant picture of six lads in their green running vests holding the tricolour. And they're all very, very delighted. Uh, Niall Murphy, Nicholas Criggs, Seamus Robinson, Harry Colbert, Giona Stafford and Shane Brosnan, Brosnan all celebrate the Irish team won gold in the under-20s men's 5,000 metres. Brilliant. In the European cross-country uh, finals at the weekend. And the picture's brilliant. It's the six lads sprayed in muck in their little green t-shirts. Um, brilliant picture. Really good. Congratulations, uh, under-20s men's running. Brilliant. Well done. Great shout-out for Irish triumphs there. Now, what's next? Ryan O'Neill, the Hollywood star, Hollywood heartthrop. He passed away. Oh, the guy from Barry Lyndon shot on these very shores. That Ryan O'Neill? Yes, that Ryan O'Neill. Loads of tributes poured out from Barbara Streisand and William Shatner. Obviously, he's Hollywood royalty in a way. And he had a kind of a turbulent relationship with his daughter, Tatum, who co-starred with him, I think you might remember, in Paper Moon, which would make me want to think about re-watching that movie. I remember loving that movie when I was a kid. But he was famously caught in, in, what should we say, indisposed by his then partner, Farrah Fawcett, and famously she left him. And uh, uh, when she left, he, had, he couldn't bear to look at a, the big picture of her uh, Andy Warhol painting of Farrah Fawcett at the end of their bed, apparently. So he gave it to Farrah Fawcett and she took it. And when she passed away, tragically, he, got, he asked for it, he took it back. He went to the house and the estate gifted him back the picture. And he, he was talking in an interview about the way he would, him and his son would talk to the image of Farrah Fawcett. Anyway, he won possession after the Texas Univer- University of Texas tried to sue him because she left a lot of her personal effects to that. Anyway, he, he got to keep the painting. But the real, I, I think for everybody, what you, your head goes to is Love Story that he made with Ali McGraw. I remember... It was made in actually 1970, wasn't it? Like it's a long time ago. Um, but I just thought we just have to, one of his biggest legacies, that amazing, I think it was the first really sad film, a young woman gets sick and dies. It's a, a spoiler alert, sorry. <laughs> but <laughs> here, here's this theme tune, have a listen. <laughs> Put down your cup of tea. Have a moment. I mean, it really brings you right back, doesn't it? <laughs> Might rewatch that tonight, actually. Get the tissues at the ready. Now, but a couple of years later, after the movie's release, Andy Williams wrote words to that music and released it. And this is the one I remember. Listen to this. Where do I begin? Slow dancing in Chicago. <laughs> if you remember that reference, you're with me. Maybe over to rumours. Story that is older than the <laughs> wait for someone to ask you to dance. <laughs> the truth what a voice. The love she to me. What a voice. Ooh, it's lovely, isn't it? Happy Monday. <laughs> I'm not crying. You're crying. Wait, there's more sad news. I think it's important to mention this brilliant man who I actually worked with on a couple of charity functions, the founder of the brilliant Jack and Jill Foundation, um, Jonathan Irwin, has sadly passed away 82 over the weekend, we read here. And uh, the incredible work Jack and Jill do. There's, he has imprinted the lives of many, many people across this country. Here he is explaining how they started the foundation. And how it started is the horror of losing a baby. 
And this was the second baby, because before that, Marianne had twins, one of whom was stillborn. Same hospital, what was about three years later, heartbreak, catastrophe, and then staring around to see how could this have happened. Because I think what shocked us most was there was no government aid to little babies and parents like, like us. What a wonderful, wonderful legacy. And I had some great memories working with, with Jack and Jill and they still continue, as you know, to do incredible work. So maybe if you're thinking of making a donation for Christmas, Jack and Jill Foundation, might be a little memory to Jonathan Irwin for doing such incredible work as we know. And then I was reminded, I actually did, a, the biggest thing I ever did was for Jack and Jill. I did Celebrity Eurostar. I did, yeah. And I was voted first off. And um, guess what my song was? I had to sing it again when I was first off, Tears of a Clown. <laughs> Not even joking. But uh, the late, great Jonathan Irwin fondly remembered. And thank you on behalf of everybody who's ever, you know, worked with Jack and Jill. They're just really brilliant, brilliant people. And you'll, if, you know, if you've ever been with them, you'll know what I mean. Jonathan Irwin, RIP. Meanwhile, in Paris. The Paris Ritz. Have you been to the Ritz in Paris? No, I haven't been, I can't say. But it's obviously the Paris Ritz is... Is it probably the most famous city, five-star hotel in the world, that in the world, or for something? Yeah, it's, it, it's renowned, famous. So if you're staying there and you lose your $750,000 diamond ring, you probably, can you afford to lose three quarters of a million ring? Probably not, no. But the question began swirling soon after police were notified that the ring had gone missing from the Ritz Hotel. It, was it meticulously planned? Was it a targeted robbery? Was it an act of carelessness? Or was it a quick swipe by a, you know, have a go, have a go thief when the opportunity presented itself? It was a Malaysian guest at the hotel who reported the missing diamond to the police. And guess where it turned up? It actually turned up in the vacuum cleaner. Whew. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever hoovered something up and found it a month later when you're emptying the back? I have to empty my vacuum all the time, actually. Uh, 750,000, anyway, it turned up so it, it, it wasn't as glamorous as they thought a heist. No, it was a very busy cleaner. Anyway, there it was. She's all, everybody's all released. I should say so. What a relief. Now, speaking of being careful. Now, uh, talking about Christmas gifts, this, this grabbed my attention. What do puppies and bees have in common? The Irish Independent asks us. The answer is that both are for life, not just for Christmas. According to concerned beekeepers of the Irish, native Irish honeybees, they're warning people are ordering insects online as gifts. I think this is kind of strange, but apparently it's really big. Just as Animal Rescue dread this time of year, the Native Irish Honeybee Society, NIHBS, are worried about the growing number of imported bee colonies because they actually pose a great threat to biodiversity. Online shopping for bees is having a really negative effect on our on our Irish bees because they're creating hybrid bees. I wonder do they have little French accents? <laughs> uh, unfortunately, beekeepers cannot control who their queens mate with. So if you are buying imported non-native species, your bees will be crossbred. We shouldn't be moving bees around Europe, they tell us from the uh, Irish beekeepers. Uh, listen to this little stat, which will scare you a little bit. Um... So in 2012, the Department of Agriculture showed about 100 queens were imported in 2012. That figure has gone up to 1,279 queens by 2021. 
can you believe that? So yeah, be careful if you're buying bees. The uh, the native Irish honeybee is in danger if you do that. So just be careful. Um, and I'm sure if you want more information about that, if you are buying bees, and I can imagine you probably have someone, someone might have a teenager at home who wants to be, you know, it's, it seems like a, a pro-biodiversity thing to do, but apparently it's dangerous. So, um, as I said, the National Irish Honey Bee Society, NIHBS, will have information all about that. Be bee smart this Christmas. Import the fizz, not the buzz. I can do this all day. Maybe the National Irish Honey Bee Society will sign me up to their marketing department. Maybe. Sorry. Sorry. Sorry, sorry, sorry. The nine o'clock show monologue coverage has jumped the shark and it should be discontinued immediately. That's going to sting. On this morning's Today with Claire Byrne, Claire heard how a number of organisations in the tourism, hospitality and enterprise sectors have come together to form a coalition that will look for action over what they claim is an ongoing shortage of taxis around the country. One of the organisations that's part of this coalition is the Vintners Federation of Ireland and its CEO Pat Crotty spoke to Clare. We have all been trying to address it individually to date and I'm sure there are many more out there who are only learning about the, the, the possibility now and we've all been sharing the same experience that, that on our own we have made no headway. Mm-hmm. But the issue is still there. So we said, well, OK, let's come together and, and, and try and get a bigger ripple on the water. Yeah, because the latest research from Transport for Ireland found 81% of people think it's easy to get a taxi. So if they say that, what's the problem? Uh, I, I haven't seen that there and, and I find it very hard to believe because we have done extensive surveying. And in fact, we had done it independently. Uh, all the different groups had been surveying because our own members were already telling us the issue. And we have, we have numbers that suggest that in, in broadest figures, about 70% of people, 63 in some issues, over 70 in others, are really not happy with the state of affairs mm-hmm. at all. So what are you looking for exactly? Well, I suppose the first issue with any problem is that you have to recognise you have a problem. And at the minute, we have made no headway because the taxi regulator says, per capita, we have enough taxis in Ireland to meet all needs. But we know they're not meeting the needs because there's no use quoting that kind of a figure to a member of the public who's standing on the side of the street, whether it be in the middle of the day or the middle of the night, waiting for a taxi that isn't going to come. So we're we're asking for government to recognise there is a problem. Because if they recognise there's a problem, then they will concentrate their minds, as will the taxi regulator and any of us who are stakeholders, can all be part of a solution. Mm-hmm. But at the minute, we are banging our head against a brick wall. Yeah, the National Transport Authority has just given us a statement. They say there's no cap on either vehicle or driver licence numbers in Ireland. The NTA is currently accepting licence applications for wheelchair accessible taxis, wheelchair accessible hackneys, limousine and local area hackneys. They say interest has been very very strong in becoming a taxi driver across 2023. The record-breaking numbers taking the first step to applying to taking the driver entry test. That indicates very strong growth in driver numbers in the short term. So people are, are very interested, they say. They are becoming taxi drivers. So perhaps this is just a matter of time. All of these applications need to go through. Maybe in a couple of months we won't have a problem. Would you be satisfied with that? 
No, Tara, I wouldn't at all. No, it is it is not the lived experience. Um, and people showing interest is not putting taxis on, on the road. Lots of people can show interest in lots of things that will never come to fruition. And and that is that is our lived experience. And indeed, even the taxi drivers we have, and you can say no blame to them, many of them since COVID have found that they were able to make a reasonable living without doing any antisocial hours, for example. So they have decided not to. So while technically there are taxis there, they're parked, out, parked outside someone's house not working at times when, when we have customers who would love uh, to be able to hire a taxi. Late at night. So didn't, exactly, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you've no taxi representatives on your group? No taxi representatives. Mm. I don't understand the question there. We have, I mean, there are there are people who provide taxi services. We have Uber and Bolt on who are on because the the taxi the, the taxi services are happy with the status quo. The ordinary customer is not. Okay, but you don't have the National Private Hire and Taxi Association on your group. No, we don't. Mm-hmm. And no, is there is there I mean, is there a reason for that? There's no, there's no, there's no, there's absolutely no bar. If anyone, if anyone, even today is the first day that we have launched. If there's anyone would like to join, they're more than welcome. Mm-hmm. If they shared, the, if they shared the same, the same issue, and if they would like to see a better result for for the ordinary punter on the street, then they're more than welcome to join. I suppose for them, though, the introduction of more drivers, it's going to hit the taxi existing taxi drivers and potentially reduce their income. If if they're if they're already deciding that they don't need to work the times when our customers are looking for service, then they're not going to lose any income because that income isn't being made by anyone at the minute. Mm-hmm. There is more business out there to be done, and and uh, we we would like someone to get it because we would like a situation where at the minute there we have members who work the day and work the night, and on the busy nights, what they hope are the busy nights. They, are, they, they then have to drive their customers home. So instead of just tidying up and going to bed, they have to start driving customers home and they could be doing it for two or three hours and sometimes husband and wife teams in two cars driving people home to, to try and get to bed at a reasonable hour. It's not sustainable. It's probably not safe, but it is the only option for a lot of, of small pubs in rural areas in the hope of keeping the doors open. Okay, and and what sort of work have you done now with the National Transport Authority to to try and push on this? Um, we have we have been in contact with them to request meetings, and we have had no response. Never mind the negative response; we've had no response at all. Um, we have, if you actually look on their website and try to make a complaint about not being able to get a taxi, you cannot actually do it. There are categories of complaint you can make to the taxi regulator. Not being able to get a taxi is not one. You okay. can complain about the quality of the taxi or the fare or the attitude of the of the taxi driver, but you cannot tell the taxi regulator that you were unable to get a taxi. So they're not even aware. We don't know how they can even measure the success of, of the, the people being able to get a taxi because people can't complain to them. Right. Well, well, going back to their statement, they say while COVID impacted the industry numbers significantly, the recovery has been strong with Dublin driver numbers already back to pre-COVID levels. But for you in particular, it's not really Dublin that, that bothers you. It's more people in rural areas. Would I be right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, um, the VFI represents publicans uh, in everywhere except in Dublin. Mm-hmm. And it's a huge issue for us. Bittner's Federation of Ireland CEO Pat Crotty talking to Claire this morning about the lack of taxis in Ireland.
On this afternoon's Live Line, Joe Duffy paid tribute to actor and TV presenter Frank Toomey, who died at the weekend. Frank's friend, Paki O'Callaghan, remembered the late comedian and Bosco presenter. How will you remember Frank Toomey? Well, Joe, there are, you know, so many aspects to him, you know. Um, first of all, he was a great friend and, and colleague, you know, and um, Frank was, apart from his acting side, he was such a just compassionate and generous guy, you know. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he, he, I, I never left him, you know, after meeting Frank without having a bounce in my step. He, he had that enormous, like, ability to, you know, light up any room or, you know, just lift any occasion. Uh, in fact, I often thought he was funnier off stage than he was on, you know. And um, <laughs> yeah. on, on stage, he, he was such a generous actor too. Uh, he, yeah. He'd never, ever seek the limelight or seek the hog situations, you know. Um, so, yeah, I, I really I miss him so much, Joe, you know, as uh, both just uh, as a collaborator and but especially as a friend, you know. And when did you first meet Frank? Because did you know him when he was in his Bosco television show, the, his incarnation there? There was four hundred episodes of that TV, that really? children's TV Jeez. show. Yeah, did you? Yeah. Was that was it after he became famous, as the fella said? <laughs> I, I I knew him when he expressed reservations about his involvement with Bosco <laughs> post Bosco because Joe, you know, every yeah. audition he went into he, he was immediately, you know, revealed as, as Bosco. And even in the hospital in the last few days, some a few people said to me, I'm sure your man is Bosco. <laughs> Image of him, you know? <laughs> no, I mean that's forty years after he, he first yeah. he played Bosco, you know, but um, it, it 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 was um something that he lived with um Happily, I suppose, uh, for a lot of the time, but to a certain extent, I suppose, it dogged him to, you know, his career. Like, yeah. Because he's, a, he's because in Frank a, was, uh, yeah. In every photograph of Bosco the Puppet, there is Frank talking to him. Frank was his, <laughs> his, uh, his amanuensis, his, his, in, his interlocutor. Um, sure. Yeah, 400 episodes. That's what people forget. And then it was repeated. Yeah, Bosco's episodes. Yeah. Bosco, the puppet, yeah. talking to Frank, or indeed uh, Marion Richardson, the great Marion sure. Richardson of this parish. Um, but Indeed. Bosco yeah. talking to Frank was then repeated yeah. for years on Dempsey's Den. Sure. So it had an incredible, an incredible uh, long yeah. life. But you're right, he, he was uh, at times fed up when people, because he, he, uh, yeah. he did straight acting. He did, sure. And it was a very fine straight actor. Um and, you know, he was in film and uh, he was in film, radio, TV. And obviously on stage, he had very, very um, extensive career on stage. Um, and nobody I ever met played a woman as well as Frank. You know? okay. I, okay. I mean, you, you'd know this, that when, he's, when he was doing, um, you know, a woman on, um, on, on Funny Friday on radio, he, he put on makeup. I know that. I and know he, that. Frank took his craft. So seriously, yeah. I can remember actually uh, a time when when we were filming Bull Island. Frank used, would always be inside the counter of the Doll Bar. That's right, as, and, as, um, as Mary O'Rourke, as a great Mary O'Rourke. As Mary O'Rourke, absolutely, indeed, as Mary O'Rourke, and he'd always insist every uh, shooting day in getting a new pair of tights 
<laughs> and Frank Devereaux, the, the wardrobe guy at the time, was saying, the name of Jay is another pair of toys. You're inside the bleeding counter. No one can see your toys, you know. I can see them, Frank. The RT's budget currently wouldn't wouldn't uh, stretch to giving um, a new tights every day. But at that time, they were a bit more flush, you know. But, but, Paddy, but yeah, no, he, he was a tremendous character. And remember, he did marry her for years on, on Bull yeah. Island and subsequently on Live 9. Sure. And when we were in Athlone, well, this is the character and the personality of Mary. Rourke, anyway, she came along to the show yeah. to see yeah, yeah. to see Frank I, I remember impersonated, that yeah, yeah. and they got on like Couldn't a look in the mirror. Yeah, <laughs> they got on like a house on fire, and our kind regards to Mary uh, Rourke as yeah. well at, at this time. But um, sure. she she took it in great uh, fettle, and they had a great. Life. I think she actually came up out of the audience, and the two of them started talking at the same time. And it was hard on the program to work out who was who. He he, he was so good. Stay stay there with us, Packy. We're talking about the sure, sure. untimely passing of um, passing of Frank Toomey, uh, proud yeah. Corkman, great actor, great comedian. But Paula Lambert mm-hmm. of Lambert Puppet fame. When did you meet Frank, Paula? Oh, uh, Bosco, I was at um, Frank's audition for Bosco. We go back a long time. Wow. And I remember when he got the job um, and he was so funny at that. And I absolutely agree 100% what Packy was saying there. He was actually funnier off off the screen than he was on the screen. He was just one of the funniest people I've ever met in my life. And Always a great laugh. Explain the phenomenon of Bosco for our younger well, Frank listeners. Was, uh, he was, well, Bosco is a, a little puppet, puppet that yeah. lives in the box. Yeah. And he had all this world and then he had two friends that would be there every day. And in Frank's case, Frank was always with Gronia, Gronia okay. Nibachu. And they would be um, Bosco's friend for the day and they'd go through the magic door. I'm sure everybody remembers the rhyme to go through the magic door. And then they'd read (laughs) a story and there'd be a puzzle and a tongue twister and a song. And the presenters would be all a part of that with Bosco. So it was quite magical. I think we have a clip of um, Frank talking about Bosco, how he first got involved uh, with Bosco. This is Frank Toomey talking about how he first got involved with Bosco. I was out of work and uh, I was very friendly with Mark Agney who was working in RT at the time and he told me that there were auditions. I saw Bosco listed in the papers every day but I actually believed that it was Bosco Hogan, the actor. <laughs> I had no idea it was a puppet or anything like that. And I, Anyway, off I went full of the joys out to the, the Scouts Hall in Donnybrook Paul Lambert came out and introduced herself. And I don't know what it was, but just Paul and myself hit it off immediately. And uh, she told me what was going to be happening, took Bosco out of her bag, like introduced me to it. And uh, I kind of thought, oh God, like uh, this was a mistake coming along here. Anyway, look, in we went. We, we did the rehearsal. And because I was so laid back in as much as I thought, I'm not going to get this in a month or so days. <laughs> and and I, so I was I was laid back to a fault, as you say this. And next is, and I got the job. And that was in 83, 1983. That's a, uh, a long time ago now. But, but as, as, as we know, yeah. Packy, from going around the country with Funny Friday with him, mm. people still say, that's, that's yeah. your man. That was with Bosco. Joe Duffy and Paki O'Callaghan remembering the late actor, comedian and Bosco presenter Frank Toomey 
on this afternoon's Live Line. Brendan Courtney spoke recently on the Nine O'Clock Show about private Facebook groups called Are We Dating the Same Guy? The groups name men to be avoided on dating apps. The existence of these groups has led to some condemnation on the basis of potential character assassination, particularly from a men's rights group in Northern Ireland. Brendan spoke this morning to Niamh, who's used this type of site in New York. You heard us talking about this particular private members uh group on Facebook are we dating the same guy it's in Northern Ireland and it's causing quite a stir here so what's your opinion um, so I was a little bit taken aback when I heard the way it seems to have come across in Northern Ireland because the group in New York was very very different um, I mean initially when I heard about it I also thought the same thing and I was pretty outraged by it and then I was admitted to the group when I was dating there and realised that it actually was very, very strictly moderated and it was purely focused on the safety of women. So you weren't allowed to trash talk anybody. You weren't allowed to share personal opinions with anybody. You could only share anecdotes where, you know, in an objective, from an objective perspective, you were placed in danger or you were at risk. You could never comment and say that someone was weird because there's nothing wrong with being weird. That's not a bad thing. You have to be more specific. Um, And you also couldn't really comment too positively about anybody either because it wasn't supposed to be a competitive or ranking type forum. Yeah, because when I first read it, it, instinctively I thought, this sounds like a good idea, right? Because it's certainly more dangerous in general, for women who are dating and they need to be more careful. We know that. That's just a fact. And so this, and anything that helps keep you safe, like I, I read here that you said that you would, on a date and you'd tell a barman, just you, you had little things that you would do to keep you safe, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, but also I was away from home. So I think that was part of it. And a lot of the other women in the group don't have friends there or don't know the bar they're going to or even part of the city. So, so, so I think obviously what we're hearing here is you were part, and was yours a Facebook group? Yes. So these are private groups. You have to apply to get entry and then they're regulated by the people who set them up. So they're regulated. You just have the, I suppose, the, the personality and the scruples of the people who set it up to, I suppose, to depend on its regulation. But I have a text here. I just want you to hear this, right? Hi, Brendan. I have personal experience of this Are We Dating Same Guy site. My nephew has been subject to some vile, defamatory and disgusting comments by women on the site. He's totally innocent of all the accusations that have been attempting to assassinate his character. He has suffered anxiety and depression as a result of all this and um, there's absolutely nothing he can do to prevent these people naming him and saying what they don't like about him. Can you imagine the backlash if some men set up a site like this to destroy women's reputations and characters and talk about them physically? So I think that is kind of a, a good observation. How would it go down or is there sites that men can access to talk about dating women? To be honest, I don't know. I mean, first of all, that's a horrific thing to have happened to him. And and it's awful because there is such a, like a one-way street almost when it comes to women trash-talking men. And if they make even half an allegation, it's very difficult for men to defend themselves. So that's terrible that that happened. And it's something that was really strictly moderated in the group in New York. Um, The other thing about the group is... um, what concerned me even about coming on air in the first place is we're not supposed to talk about it. Nobody was supposed to know about it because in the case where you might have a forceful partner or somebody that you're dating, if they found out about it, it would remove the form and then there'd be women going on dates who cannot validate the risk. You just just made me think of something there, actually. Very interestingly, uh, Niamh. So if I was dating somebody and then I found out that they had 
vetted me on a site, I probably wouldn't be very happy about it. What would you think? Oh, I'd be absolutely livid, probably. So I thought it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because it's a private members group and you apply to be admitted. And so you enter as an adult and you're saying in your experience in America, it, you felt it helped keep you safe. Well, people were posting anonymously. Um, you weren't like the whole thing was supposed to be relatively anonymous, um, which obviously can be an absolute minefield. Fire yeah, well. minefield. Yeah, hundred um, percent. Yeah. But the idea was that you can't say that somebody was boring or dull or, you know, um, not as good looking in real life or you can't say anything like that. And that people were kicked out for saying things like that. And if somebody went on a date and they didn't enjoy it and they found the person to be irritating or anything out. that was... They'd be kicked out. Yeah. So what and, information and did it give you then? It was only... Honestly, it was actually a lot less exciting than it might sound. It wasn't this big gossip forum. It was very much just like blank pictures that would go up with somebody um, asking for a response. If you got no response, you could say that that person was obviously safe enough to go ahead with. If there was a response, it would be usually things like, oh, we, he said like he would get the Uber and once we got in the Uber, he didn't want to drop me off at my apartment. He kind of told the Uber driver to keep going to his apartment. So it would only be in the case of risky things like that. Okay. Or, you know, just where safety was concerned. So um, I, I, Or if somebody was, yeah. Am I sorry, not putting words in your mouth just to surmise? You're saying that you found it helpful when you were a young woman living in New York. Yeah. Well, I personally, fortunately, didn't come across any issues like that. But they're actually, sorry, there was one guy who I was speaking to on an app. And he came up and the women were like, oh, this guy again. And then someone asked, oh, what does that mean? And there was a story about someone who had been dating him and apparently everything that he told women was completely made up. And, you know, he used to be quite forceful and pressuring and uh, he would insist on calls late at night and then bringing them back to his apartment to, to meet the family. And then somebody actually has no family. And it, there was just a lot of very... Um, strange behaviours and uh, manipulative behaviours over time. So if you're, you're saying if moderated properly without libel, um, these, these private members' pages can be helpful? I could see the value in having something that was very strictly moderated just as a checking mechanism or just as a flagging mechanism. But I don't think there should be any room for open discussion on your opinions, thoughts, feelings about somebody. I just don't think that's valid at all and I don't think that should have happened in Northern yeah, Ireland. I hear what you're saying. I just yeah. wouldn't want to see Meta introduce a blanket ban on these groups because they do all have the same name and in some locations they are incredibly helpful. Like New York where there are so many people who move there on their own and don't have other reference points like, you know... Yeah, I hear what you're saying. No reference points for anybody. Irish immigrant in New York, Neve, talking to Brendan Courtney about the Are We Dating the Same Guy Facebook groups, which have raised concerns, particularly in Northern Ireland, recently. Now, it's not every week that Irish sporting history is made, but that's what happened last week when 22-year-old Armagh man Daniel Whiffen became the first Irish swimmer to break a world record on his way to his third gold medal at the European Short Cross Championships in Romania. Daniel spoke to Claire Byrne this morning. Three gold medals and a world record. How are you this morning? Uh, well, I'm actually, I'm pretty tired. I, mean, <laughs> I can imagine. But look, uh, what a successful run you had. I know you said you had 10 hard days of racing, but did you ever imagine that this would be what you'd, you'd be leaving with? 
Uh, well, I like to say I, I, I did think I was going to go that fast, but I mean, putting it down, I put it like in your head and then putting it down basically on paper is a whole lot different. But yeah, it was amazing. You, you said you weren't feeling great yesterday morning. What was going on? Yeah, I had, I had like a, I'm not sure if it was food poisoning or I'm not sure what was going on, but I was throwing up from like 1am till 5am before my race. And I don't know, I had a really bad stomach pain and then. Uh, yeah, that was just why I wasn't feeling great. Right, so you weren't going into it in a good state, but I suppose it's testament to the level of fitness that you have that you managed to, to come through and break the world record while you did it. Yeah, I think it was just more that I was just like, I was ready for it. I mean, I uh, paced it a little differently compared to my normal races because I was feeling a bit sick at the start, but then I got into it well and yeah, I mean, it worked out. Mm-hmm. And the record that you broke, it's been held by one of your idols, the Australian Olympian Grant Hackett. So I would imagine taking three seconds off that must feel extra special. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, he obviously is one of my idols and he's one of the greatest swimmers ever. And uh, to take down his, I think that was his last record that was on the books and for it to be the oldest uh, world record standing is amazing. And yeah, I mean, three seconds off it was just class and... Yeah, I'm just amazed. Have you heard from him yet? I know that you you message each other sometimes, don't you? Yeah, he texts me after the race saying well done and it was such a good time to take it in because world records don't happen that often. I wonder what it feels like for him. I mean, you may come to know that feeling in time, but it must be a strange moment to get that message from one of your heroes. Yeah, I mean, I guess people say records are not forever, but medals are. So that's why people take in the medals more than the records, I think. Mm -hmm. And you also received Male Swimmer of the Championships Award. Is that a special one? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we came into the championships with the goal of just winning one medal. And then we came away with three gold medals, which was amazing to start off with. And then obviously the world record really gave my chances of winning the Male Swimmer of the Award because I think it was the only... A world record in the short course season in 2023 so mm-hmm. it's pretty cool to have that to my name. I know you'll need some time to process this and enjoy your success and also recover but looking ahead the prospect of an Olympic medal Daniel in Paris in the summer it has to be becoming more tangible for you after that performance? Yeah I mean I'm just going to go back to training with the same mindset I had before I broke this world record but yeah, it's definitely uh, a possibility and I'm training for it. So I guess we'll have to see what happens on the day. Mm-hmm. I've been looking at some of your YouTube videos along with your twin brother, Nathan. You really seem to enjoy it. You have great fun while you're doing what you love. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I always say that I love training more than racing and I think that's what the secret is to swimming fast. So mm-hmm. I just uh, love turning up to training at five o'clock in the morning or whatever time we get up. And uh, yeah, I guess that's it. And then obviously Nathan was swimming in that final with me last night which makes it even better for me because I've got somebody in there that I know and uh, makes it more comfortable. Mm-hmm. And just to let people know swimming is not the only thing you do you're studying at Loughborough University what are you doing there? Yeah I study computer science so I'm uh, basically a full-time student as well which is uh, kind of weird uh, to put that into perspective how much we swim a week but yeah I'm getting through it. <laughs> Keeping the, the study going as well so what happens now you're straight back into training are you? Yeah, I'm I'm currently in the airport, uh, flying back to Loughborough, where I'm then going to train tonight, and then I'll just carry on as it I was going before I swam at the competition. Mm-hmm. Because the next big date is February, isn't it, for the World Championships? Yeah. 
Yeah, so we got the World Championships in Doha, where uh, hopefully it'll be a fast one. I'll be uh, resting for that one, uh, unlike this championship. So be looking forward to it. What's the ambition for the World Championships? I mean, I just like to better what happened last time. So uh, last in um, the summer, I came away with two fourth places. And uh, I think just going to this World Championships, I just want to better that result. So uh, that, will, I guess, means a bronze medal or better. Mm-hmm. You're 22 now. I mean, you're at he- heading towards peak, not even probably close to it yet. What, what is your ultimate ambition? Uh, I mean, I, I, I've always jumped to breaking a world record and I mean, I've done it. But um, I'd say I'm more, I think, long course swimming and has uh, got more prestige to it. So uh, I guess that's the next goal is to try and shift that world record we just did from the short course pole to the long course meter pole and uh, see what we can do, yeah. That's world record holder Daniel Whiffen talking to Claire Byrne this morning. Former Miss Ireland Pamela Uba joined Ray Darcy in studio this afternoon to talk about how she's been having problems with her hair. But it, it does need more maintenance. It does need a, a lot of maintenance. Hair. What sort of maintenance are we talking about? Well, it's it's very curly, very kinky curly is that we, what we call it, or kinky yeah. coily. And it comes in very various um, textures and various curl patterns and whatnot. But it does require a lot of maintenance. Like brushing my hair sometimes is just a chore. I literally have to do it section by section because it can be quite painful. So having to look after that all the time, you kind of need to be trained into how to look after your hair. So so it needs to be oiled as well, does it? It needs to be oiled. It needs to be wet. It needs to be taken care of. There's certain, we have wash days, you know, so we can have a full day where it's all about just doing your hair. It's the same for any woman really going to the salon, but I suppose that's where my problem started. I couldn't go to a salon here. Yes, so... so, and that's the thing as well that that, that your natural mm-hmm. curly hair yeah. is seen as what what what, what did, well it's not what did you think people thought of it I suppose that's the important thing isn't it like I suppose you're young you want to experiment I went into a salon and asked for a haircut I just wanted a standard like I think it was like a pixie cut at the time and they immediately just said, no, we don't deal with your hair texture and I thought, just thought it was very odd yeah. I was like why wouldn't you you just it, you cut it wet or dry, same as any other. Um, and if it's to do with textures, well, I know white people can have very very curly hair too. So it's it's all the same really. But nobody would touch my hair. I've tried multiple salons and it was always the same feeling and the same feeling of rejection. And normally you go into hairdressers, you come out, you feel really good. Yeah. That was never the case. And it's really sad because even people would say, why don't you look for salons that cater to you well there's only one that I know of in in Dublin and I'm from Galway so I'm not going to always be trekking up and down just to do that as well and I also think being hairdressers you should be trained in every texture Mm. in college so that you can deal with this and talk to me a bit about straightening your hair then yes so I reverted to straightening my hair because I, I suppose I I thought at the time you know I didn't like the look of my my curly hair. I, to be honest, a lot of people would say certain things about curly hair and that, the way it looks. And um, as a kid, you grow up kind of nearly hating your hair texture because you want it to look straight and you want to have that gorgeous blowout that the models have. And you just, 
that's what society tells you is the look. So that is what you're trying to achieve, uh, which is really unfair because our hair is gorgeous as it is. Um, but that's what I thought I needed to do. So I reverted to chemically straightening my hair with relaxers, which can go really, really south if you don't know what you're doing and is what happened to me. Um, Were you doing it yourself? Yeah, I was doing it myself or my mom would help me, but she, she hasn't a clue either. Right. So um, so again, nobody was available to you to do it professionally? No, never. It was never done professionally and ended up, I felt the moment when my hair burnt and I was like, mom need to wash this off now. And the hair was just coming off in the shower and I was like, oh my God, what have we just done? Hmm. Because right, I did a bit of research and I, I see research in America there from the year 2000, uh, a nationwide outbreak of alopecia associated with the use of a hair relaxing formulation. Yeah. And that's what happened to you. So you, yeah. so firstly it fell out as a result of chemical burning. Yeah. And then later on. And then later on you're trying to cover up the fact so then you're wearing extensions and wigs and different things and it's just causing traction and you're pulling your hair and that's already weak and brittle because of the real relaxers and it's damaging it further. And that's what happened to me. And obviously being a beauty queen, there's also certain, you know, beauty standards set on that just get put on you. Uh, I know it comes with the territory, um, but at the same time I felt like I have to look good all the time. So you're there, you're always trying to put these different things in your hair trying to look your absolute best and again if I had just accepted my hair as it was and worn my hair out as it was I wouldn't run into all of these problems mm. but I, society makes you feel like it's not good enough there was a point in time where you couldn't wear afro hair to go into a job interview because it was considered un- untidy so that's kind of where I was left at You'd hope that the world is changing Anyway, that's, <laughs> that's as it was for you. Um, so alopecia, that's quite serious. Yeah, it is a serious condition. How did you deal with that? How did you, like mentally, how did you deal with it? Well, I tried everything. I originally didn't know it was alopecia. I tried using more plant-based uh, shampoos and conditioners, different oils. And then I went to get PRP. That's like plasma, I think. It's, it's it's where they take your blood, spin it down, take the plasma of it and inject it into your scalp to stimulate hair, hair growth. growth in the follicles. Right. So that's what Did I that got. Did that work? No, it didn't. No. And it was it's not a nice procedure to have done It doesn't either. sound like a nice no, procedure. No, it's not. And that didn't work either. And then I came across, um, there was this influencer who was also a black woman. She was from the UK and she had it done. And she was kind of one of the first female black women that I've seen to have it done and seen the result. And I was, done, the, the hair transplant. Oh, hair transplant, yes. And I was just like, you know what? I must give this a go because people probably think I came up with this as a spare of a moment decision, but I've been living with this probably for like, I don't know, eight years, ten years. Okay, so so just for people at home, because we're not on television, mm-hmm. uh, Pamela. So it's 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 sort of about an inch on your an inch and inch and a half on your hairline, a band. Yes. If, imagine yeah. if you had a hair band there yeah. on your hairline. That's where the alopecia affected most. Yeah, that's where okay. it affected me. Okay, uh, so so the rest of your hair was was fine. The rest of my hair was fine, but chemically damaged because of the relaxers. Okay. So once I went to get the hair transplant done. 
I opted to actually get the whole thing shaved off and start from scratch. Okay. Because you don't have to. But the only place you got plugs was in that? Just in the front. In, just the, in front. the front. They okay. took hair from the back. So that's how it works. They, they mm. extract your hair follicles from the back. And it, think of it as gardening. And they make little holes in the front line where they're doing the transplant and they just plug in the follicles there. And they make it really neat so it looks natural as well. And just like, you know, there are no hairdressers who would deal with your hair, is it a specialised thing when it comes to transplanting black hair as opposed to white hair? Well, they have to... They have to know more when it comes to transplanting black hair. That's why I needed to find um, clinics that do, did black hair because yeah. our, obviously our curl pattern, it's not as easy to to stick in the grafts into that to make sure it grows out in the right curl pattern. Um, so I found that challenging, to be honest. And I think that is why I opted to share my story about it because I wanted to make sure that the next person who goes to look for a person that's black and female that has this done, that they can see their journey because I couldn't find loads of people that I could follow their journey to see what mm. the outcome would be. That's former Miss Ireland Pamela Uba talking to Ray Darcy this afternoon about the troubles with her hair. Finally, on this edition of Playback Daily, when Muriel Bulger, award-winning travel writer, was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, she didn't realise that it would affect her speech. On this morning's Nine O'Clock show, Muriel and her speech and language therapist Beth Armstrong joined Brendan Courtney in studio. So how long have you had Parkinson's, Muriel? I think I'm coming up to 12 years now in January. And how did you get your diagnosis? How did that start? I was having treatment for thyroid problems at the time. And I started, I, I was also doing a weekly interview for one of the newspapers. And when I'd come home after doing my interview, I couldn't read a word of my my writing. Wow. Literally not one word. And I developed all sorts of tricks and memories to remember what people had said. And while I was having my treatment for thyroid, my hand had started shaking. And I said to the doctor, why have I got a shake in my right hand? And he said, oh, that's thyroid. When, when you finish your treatment, we look after that. And in the meantime, I looked up Dr. Google. Oh. Last time I did Dr. Google, I don't do it anymore. Yeah, we don't recommend that. Do no, <laughs> I don't do it. But I looked up just idly one day, why does your handwriting disimprove and become illegible? And the first thing was Parkinson's. Wow. And I put two and two together. And when I went back to my GP, I said, I think I have Parkinson's. And he said, we'll have you checked. And that was... I found out. Wow. So how did you take it when you were diagnosed? Very pragmatic. I'm a bit pragmatic really? about yeah. life. That's why you're sitting here. You're so pragmatic, actually. <laughs> you contacted us, which is amazing. I love that. You didn't get down about it. It didn't make it... Dep- I'm lucky I don't get down. Oh, great. Great. I, I don't, really. People who have different symptoms, of course, there's it's many various. Mm-hmm. Uh, how it was affecting your handwriting? How else was it affecting? What other symptoms did you have? Well, I've got very slow now walking and every. I mean, I think I'm walking very fast, but as the physiotherapist told me, I have to walk like an orangutan and exaggerate my steps a bit like the voice. I have to exaggerate my voice to make myself understood, because apparently with Parkinson's things get shorter. Your steps get shorter, your voice gets shorter, your breath gets shorter, mm-hmm. in my case. And I would run out of puff when I was trying to talk. And I didn't realise, everyone was saying, pardon, pardon, pardon. I thought all my friends are going bloody deaf. And I, <laughs> at least I still have my hearing. Yeah. 
It was only when I was referred to Beth that I was really made aware of the speech problems with Parkinson's. So you got in touch to tell us about how you were very surprised. That you didn't think that was going to be a problem, did you, your speech? Not at all. I didn't even know it could be a problem. And you were surprised, weren't you? I mean, Very. people couldn't hear you. Is that what you noticed, first Absolutely. of all? Absolutely. And yeah. I would run out, when I'd start talking, you know, I, I would run out of puff. I, and I would, my voice would peter off at the end of sentences. And I would try to talk quicker to get the sentence out. So it was quite incoherent at times. But so I didn't realise that. That's interesting, isn't it? That you didn't even notice it, did you yeah, really? Yeah, I didn't. Because it's... It, it, it's it's degenerative, isn't it? It happens very slowly. Yeah, yeah. So over time, things get progressively more difficult and the speech can beco- become harder to understand. So the normal things you would tend to see in terms of the features would be um, a softer, quiet voice. Some people get kind of a hoarse voice quality, a monotone. So there's yes, lacking that natural monotone. intonation um, or like rushed or mumbly speech. So the Parkinson's creates, like it disrupts the natural body's internal cueing system. So in a way, the there's a sensory aspect to the disease. So the person is out of calibration, both with their That's physical movement. That's a very good description. Yeah, that makes sense, speech. doesn't yeah. it? You... Absolutely. And it, 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 in a weird way, finding out what's wrong is, is liberating in some ways, isn't it? Because then you can take control of it in a way. Well, especially when you know that they can do something for it. Mm. That it wasn't something that was going to get worse and worse. I sounded drunk all the time. And people on the phone particularly, my kids would say to me, Mum, you sound very tired. And I'm not a bit tired. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my mother says that to me all the time. You sound tired, you sound tired. Um, it's a, you, Beth is one of your team. There's a big team when, when it comes to managing Parkinson's. Is that correct? Medical well, team. I'm, I'm managed by Parkinson's Clinic in, in um, St. Vincent's. And you just have checkups every couple of months. But now, then they referred me to Beth's team. Very good. And and you contacted us because you're so happy with the work that Beth's done with you. So actually, to, to start talking about that work, we actually, you sent us very generously, shared a clip with us of your very first session with Beth. And then we have a, a very recent clip so you can actually hear the improvement. But we'll play the first clip first. So tell me, you said you had children, Muriel. Yes. Tell me about them. They're children, they're, all, they're almost 50s now. Mm-hmm. Three, two boys and a girl. Mm-hmm. Where are they living? My son lives next door to me, yeah. so he's there if I, if I need him, and yeah. I'm there for him as well. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. good. My daughter is married and has three kids, and my son has two sons, he's not married. Okay. And my voice is going there, that's what happens. Yeah, I can hear that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. okay. And they say you shouldn't try and clear your throat and it's like that, so how do I get out of that? Well, we'll talk about it. Yeah, because we'll that's the problem. Yeah. You were a journalist for many years and a writer, but talking's very much part of your trade, right? It's part of my life as well. Of course, <laughs> of course, yeah. So you decided to tackle this. That's how you met Beth. Um, and then, how long have you been working together? So we uh, met at the end of August. Oh, was that all? Yeah. yeah. Wow. It was just a month. I was, was away month. in September, so we didn't start the treatment till October. Okay. So it was a month of intensive. Now, it so. is quite early in the morning as well, but we have a clip of the results of the, of the treatment very quickly. You can really hear it as well. Let's play that clip. So today is the 18th of August 2023. We have Muriel Bulger here and you're going to read the Grandfather Passage. Grandfather Passage. You wish to know all about my grandfather. Well, he's nearly 93 years old, yet he still thinks as swiftly as ever. He dresses himself in an old black frock coat, usually several buttons missing. 
a long beard clings to his chin, giving those who observe him a pronounced feeling of the utmost respect. Then he speaks, his voice is just a bit cracked and quivers so, a bit at um, me. How does it work? What happens? Yeah, so the particular programme that myself and Muriel did is called Lee Silverman Voice Therapy or LSVT Loud. So it's um, based on research from the US and it's extremely evidence-based. Therapists do need to be certified to provide it, so that's important to mention. Um, But it's very intensive and it's based on the principles of neuroplasticity. So basically rewiring the brain um, uh, to to speak at a new um, louder volume. So uh, intensity, repetition, and the idea of use it or lose it. So it focuses on the subsystems of speech. So we have respiration or breathing, um, phonation, which is the vocal cords. So we do exercises to improve the closure of somebody's vocal cords. And then articulation, so um, pronouncing sounds more clearly. And the way th- those three coordinate between them. How, how often do you work together? So it's four times a week wow. for four weeks. Okay, yeah. oh, for four, so it's intense. 16 sessions over a month. Okay. Yeah, and there's daily homework. So it yes. is, it's a big undertaking, both for Muriel, but also for us, I suppose, as a service to be able to offer that. And you're obviously very diligent. I was. <laughs> I was. But I, you could, I could see the improvement from day one almost. Could you? Well, certainly after the first week. Yeah. Yeah, you, you've got more volume definitely in your voice. So what do they actually sound like, the, the exercises? Like, do you have to do them how often a day? So the sessions are an hour and then Muriel does 10 minutes in the evening on her own. Oh, OK. So manageable. Um, yeah. So it's almost like I describe it like dosage with medication. It needs to you need to have two a day for the four weeks. Um, so that's the session on with us and then the session on your own. Um, we start off with some um, phonation exercises. So deep breathing and, and producing an ah sound very loudly. Then we move from single words into short phrases, sentences Poetry. Poetry and we move up to conversation and then we practice having conversations both one to one in a quiet room and then we go out where there's background noise and then we go down to the coffee shop and, you know, we practice kind and of... they make me order my cappuccino <laughs> and they sit at the far end to see if they can hear me ordering my cappuccino. Travel writer Miriam Bulger on this morning's nine o'clock show with her speech and language therapist Beth Armstrong talking about her Parkinson's treatment and trying to get somebody to take her cappuccino order. And that's all I have for you on this edition of Playback Daily. The programme was compiled, written and edited by me, Neil O'Shuradon. Don't forget you can listen back to all the programmes featured on Playback Daily on the RTE radio app. Until the next time, thank you for listening and good luck. <laughs>